I suspect most of us have little or no idea exactly how people who have jobs that are different than ours spend their days. Sometimes you may think to yourself, so think about someone in their job and you wonder, so what do they do all day? What do they do with their time? I I don't understand it. I know that's certainly true of pastors. You know, there's all the jokes of, you know, it must be nice to work one day a week and, you know, those kinds of things that that, uh, you hear. Um, we We all struggle with that. I heard Haddon Robinson, who was a professor at Gordon Conwell, talk about how he had some friends who just really loved to needle him about that. And he said, you know, he had friends, they'd call him in the middle of the the morning and say, I hope he didn't wake you up. And um, he said one of them particularly loved to needle him. And he called him one day and he said, he said, and he said, "Uh, you pastors have a mate. He said, you know, if it's a good day, you get up, you study a little bit, make a few calls. If it's a bad day, you roll over in bed and say your prayers. And I've been thinking a lot about that. Not the ministry part of it, but the prayer part of it. The fact that what struck me is, how often do I take my prayers almost as, as little, think so little about them as almost rolling over in bed and saying your prayers? I think there is something about prayer that too often we miss. I mean, I suspect we all at one time or another pray. But I wonder, and I ask myself this question, if I'm really engaging in the kind of prayer that Scripture speaks to us about, particularly as we're praying for other people. Now, there is a foundational dynamic, the truth, that is woven throughout the pages of Scripture that tells us God is almighty. There is absolutely nothing that God cannot do that he desires to do. When God says, I, I want to do it, it's done. Scripture tells us that from beginning to end. The beginning verse of Isaiah 59 is just one place that says, The Lord's arm is not too short and too weak to save. His ear is not too deaf to hear. God hears all. He can do all. He has all power. And story after story and the word of the prophets and the gospels and the teachings of Paul, all of that, underneath it, the foundational element of it is God is almighty. God can do whatever God wants to do. But there is a second foundational truth that runs throughout Scripture. And that is that God desires... That his people would partner with him in the work he desires to accomplish. It's a phenomenal thing to ponder. That the almighty God who can do anything he desires to do at any time he desires to do it. Says I'm willing to partner with these feeble, frail, fallible human beings in accomplishing my purposes. You see it from the very beginning. When God calls out Abraham, he says to him, I'm going to bless you with more descendants than you can possibly imagine. And then he says, and it's through you, I'm going to bless every nation on the earth. You get a little bit different idea of that in in Ezekiel chapter 22 when, when he says, God says, I looked for someone to stand in the gap and I couldn't find someone. 
I'm looking for someone who will stand in the gap between what I, my, my wrath and the people. I'm looking for someone who's willing to take that on, to be that person. And I couldn't find anyone. And there is this sense that we, as we read the scriptures that God is looking for people, looking for his people who will stand in the gap who will partner with him in the pur- accomplishing his purposes in this world. In verse 16 of Isaiah 59, we see it once again. And here it takes on just a little bit different idea. And again, God is looking and he says he was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. And the word that's used here is the same word that is often translated intercessor. In essence, he's saying, I looked and there was no one who was willing to intercede for the people in need. There was no one who was willing to stand in the gap. There was no one who was willing to, to, to bring these people, to care about these people before me. But what's fascinating to me is that in that, there is an assumption that God is saying there ought to be. I, my, my people, this is part of the role of my people, to be the people who stand in the gap, who intervene, who are intercessors. But there is another place where this word is used. And it's in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. as this, this word about the Messiah to come. And in verse 6... Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the word that is often translated, laid on him, is the same word that was used in Isaiah 59, 16, about intervening and being an intercessor. That Jesus came and he stood in the gap He was the ultimate intercessor for us and our sin. And God is calling us to play that role, to be that person, to stand in the gap, to intervene, to be intercessors, to be people who who connect heaven and earth Or as one writer says, to be a part of God's, of heaven's invasion into earth. To be people who through our actions and our prayers are saying, Lord, use me to bring your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What's interesting to me about Isaiah 53, 6, and in fact the whole chapter, is that we tend to think that when God wants to use us in this world, it's going to be through power. But Isaiah says it's going to be through vulnerability and sacrifice and compassion. How is it that Jesus saves the world? It's not through a sword, it's through a cross. And how is it that God's going to use us to stand in the gap, to be intercessors, to be the people who pray for others and connect others with him? Not through power, but through compassion and vulnerability and sacrifice. I will never forget that day. It's been 34 years almost to the very day as we sit here this morning. 
I walked out of the classroom, my college classroom, and felt like I had been run over by a semi-truck. As our class mingled in the hallway waiting for the second half of class, we all looked at each other like deer in the headlights and said, what in the world just happened in there? We had just finished taking the first exam of the class, and we were stunned by how hard it was. I mean, we looked at each other and said, I didn't even know what some of those words meant, much less answering the questions. Now, here's the context of that. It was my junior year, first semester. In the spring before, I had just responded to God's call about ministry. And so this is my first, I'm taking my first classes, Bible classes, ministry classes. And this first one was on the Pentateuch. And our professor was a young guy who had just come out of grad school. And if you know, if you've ever had a class from a professor who just finished grad school, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Everything they've learned, they want you to learn. And he was just pouring it out in us. And the expectations that that his professors had in grad school were the expectations he had for us in college. And we we were run over. And we took this test on the Pentateuch, and we all walked out going, I I don't even know what that was about. I remember a couple days later going to my mailbox, opening up, pulling out my exam, and doing a dance around the lobby there in front of the the mailbox, just going, yes, yes, I got a D. I got a D. This is awesome. I can't believe it. I got a D. This is so great. And people look at me like, are you out of your mind? And I found out later that in the class there were there were three B's, one C, five D's, and 17 F's. Now you can tell how that whole experience has been imprinted into my mind because I remember those details. <laughs> and there was a note on my exam as everybody else says, bring your, bring your exam to class on Tuesday. And we all slunk into class thinking we are going to get a tongue lashing. And a professor stood up in front of us and he said, he said, I'm, I, I'm really, I was really disappointed with your test scores. And he said, I've been praying about this for the last three or four days. What do I do about this? What's the problem? And then you could see tears begin to well up in his eyes. And soon they were rolling down his cheeks. And he said to us, please forgive me. I failed you. And we're all looking at each other saying, I'm pretty sure the problem's us, not you. We'd never had to study for an exam like that before. But he took it on himself. And he said, I'm so sorry. And he said, listen, I have been praying about how I can be a better teacher. And if you will promise to be better students, we'll just throw out this exam and we'll start over again. There were some people who dropped the course after that. (laughs) One of the best decisions of my life was to stay in that class. I took seven more classes over those two years from that same professor. And I can guarantee you, if nothing else, God put him in that classroom for my sake. Because on that day, sitting there watching him weep for us, my academic, I I came to life academically. Up to that point, I only studied because there was a test. But after that point, I studied because I wanted to learn. Something about the way he responded to us ignited a fire in me and I wanted to learn and I wanted to to grow and I wanted to develop academically and I figured out what that big building was in the middle of campus with books in it. I never knew what that was before for two years. 
And, and I guarantee you, I would not be here today if it weren't for that day and that professor being willing to take on that compassion that was born out of a heart of prayer about this problem. The thing about praying for, for people, the thing about being intercessors, is that it's costly. Compassion is hard. And God is saying, I want you to take burdens, take, take the burdens of people. I want you to feel their pain. I want you to, to feel their hurt. I want you to agonize with them, step into their place. And we're saying, but I have enough of my own stuff. But that's the call of the gospel. That's what it means to pray for each other. I, I've been, as I've been pondering this, I've come to the conclusion that, that if... If we are people who want to hang on to what God has given us, if we're people who want to keep the, the, the gifts and the abilities that God has given us, if we want to hoard them and say they're mine and I want to use them only the way I want to use them, then probably intercessory prayer isn't the best idea for us. Because as we start praying about circumstances and God starts getting hold of our hearts, we want to give more and more of our time to praying. And it's a good chance God is going to tap us and say, look, you know what? You can do something about helping this person in their need. I suspect that most of the people who are missionaries somewhere around the world or this nation probably started praying about that country. And God touched their hearts about it. And I'm convinced that when we start praying biblically, start praying the way God has designed it, then we start feeling an openness about our time and our talents and our treasures. And we start praying with open hands instead of closed hands. And it will be involvement. It's hard to bear people's burdens. It's not easy. Amy Carmichael went to India in the latter part of the 19th century... And she, um, she joined in with the other missionaries there and was doing the things that they did until she realized some things that were happening with the young girls there where she was. In that culture, particularly at that time, uh, girls were, were not treated all that well to begin with. But there were lots of circumstances in which these girls, many of them, ended up as prostitutes in the Hindu temples. And it bothered her. And she agonized about that. And whenever she tried to, to speak to someone about it, their response was, listen, don't rock the boat. She heard that from the British government. She heard that even from her own colleagues. Look, we've got peace here now. Things are calm. Don't mess with the waters. Just let it go. It's not our problem. It's just the way it is. And finally, she went to God and said, Lord, I don't know what to do. She said, I, I guess I've just come to the place where I have to say it's not my burden. And Lord, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't take the, the, the comments and the, and, the, and the opposition and the struggle. Lord, I, it, it's just not my burden and my problem anymore. And she said as she was praying, she got a vision of Jesus kneeling, not underneath an olive tree, but under an Indian tamarisk tree. And she looked at him, and the tears were, were pouring down his face. 
And something drew her to him, and she knelt down beside him. And he said to her, you're right, Amy, this is not your burden. This is not your problem. It's my burden. I'm just looking for someone who will bear it with me. And she prayed, and eventually she said, Lord, if it's your burden, then it has to be my burden. And she spent the rest of her life giving hope to girls who were in a hopeless situation. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Sometimes we wonder if it makes any difference when we pray. We wonder and we, we pray and we pray and it feels like nothing changes, nothing happens. Everything's just the same. Every, people just go on as they always have. Everything is as it was. And we get very, I would almost say, cynical about prayer. What difference does it really make? And what ends up happening in that cynicism is we start praying less and less. And we become involved less and less until we in some ways become inactive about our prayers. It's in those moments that we need to remember that the answer to the prayers is not our responsibility, that's God's. And we remember that God is good and wise and his timing is perfect and he answers prayers in the way that are perfect and, and we have to trust him. And we remember that Jesus tells a parable about the smallest seed being put into the ground. And it looks like it has, it's not going to do anything. But eventually, it grows into something. And we remember Jesus telling a parable about planting wheat. And sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And nothing happening until finally a shoot comes up out of the ground. And eventually, there is a harvest. And in our moments of feeling a bit cynical about praying and wondering if it makes any difference, it's in that very moment that we have to trust God's timing and his goodness and his mercy. That he knows more than we do. And the calling on us is not to answer the prayers. The calling on us is to pray. And to pray with compassion and involvement and bearing burdens. You see, the opposite side of that is that not only can we be inactive cynics, we can be hyperactive messiahs. And we can start thinking that it's all on us. God has said to us, look, I want you to partner with me. I want you to be a part of this. And we interpret that as we are the ones who solve the problem. It's in our hands. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. So we'll take this into our own hands. And we become the solution. And, and we become the answer. And, and we are the ones who deal with the problems. And in those moments, we need to remember John the Baptist, who was asked, are you the Christ? He put up his hands and said, I am not the Christ. Sometimes I wonder if we ought to wake up every morning and just say, I am not the Christ. It's hard because we see needs and we want to do something. And there are times where God calls us to do something. But in his time and in his way. Because when we feel like it's on us, prayer becomes an, an overwhelming burden that ends up causing us to give up on it. But it's his work. 
and it's his way. You see, what we're really praying about for people is not to get what we want. We're praying, in essence, for people to experience the fullness of God. What we're really praying for is shalom. You know, a word we typically translate peace, but so much bigger than that. Completeness, wholeness. I I sometimes wonder if it isn't maybe the best definition of, of what God intended in his creation for us. That the whole essence of God's creative genius is that his people and his creation would experience shalom. The fullness of God in all of his glory. It is, in essence, praying what we just said in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let your kingdom come in this person's life here on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come on this circumstance here on earth as it is in heaven. Let them experience the fullness of who you are. And it's not on us to answer the prayers. It's on us to pray the prayers. And what we're really praying is, God, let people see you. Lord, do your work in these people and in the circumstances that you alone can do. And Lord, if it costs me, so be it. That's what I see in Moses. In this story, brief story we read in, in, in Exodus 32. The backstory of that is the golden calf. Moses and God are up on the mountain and they are, you know, they're having this awesome 40 days together. And all of a sudden God says, Moses, you got to go back down. The people, it's a mess. And come to find out they've taken the gold that God gave them from the people of Egypt when they left. And they've melted it down in the shape of a calf. And now they put it up and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who rescued us. This is who we worship. And God's upset with them. In fact, he says to Moses, look, you better get down there because your people that you brought out of Egypt are having trouble. And God says, I'm fed up with these people. I've had enough of their whining and their complaining. And now this, step aside, Moses, I'm going to take care of them and start over with you. I think for me, I might have said, really? You're going to start over with me? Because God, I'm really upset with their, I'm done with their complaining and whining too. I mean, how much can you hear about leeks and onions? Okay, they were great in Egypt, but we're done with that. The water and the birds and all of these things. But instead, it's as if Moses almost literally stands between God and the people and says, Lord, forgive them. And then you get to the end of it and he says, Lord, in fact... If you feel the need to deal with them, deal with me too. Forgive them, Lord. Let me bear the burden. Let me stand in the gap. Let me pay the price. we're really doing and and see this is the thing it it feels like it's a cost and it is but ultimately it's a privilege I mean think about it God is saying to us I want to partner with you I want to connect with you and you be my witness in this world of needy people it's a phenomenal privilege 
We get to help people see what God is like and who God is. We get to exhibit the grace of God to people and we get to bear their burdens so that they might know that God in Christ bears their burdens. It's an amazing privilege. And what ends up happening is that not only does God work in ways with people and circumstances that we could have never dreamed, God also works in us as we pray. It changes us. Because we are continually opening ourselves up to the Spirit. And as Paul says to the Romans, the Spirit that prays for us intercedes for us even as we pray and intercede for others. It's exciting to me to think that our Valley Preschool is celebrating 50 years of existence. I'm so grateful for the people 50 years ago who had a vision of that ministry and gave of themselves to start it. And now 50 years later, hundreds and hundreds of children have gone through that preschool, have learned their ABCs and their numbers and all kinds of things, even as they've learned about Jesus. Children who have been a part of our church and lots of children who haven't. It's a great ministry, and I'm excited about it and excited to celebrate these 50 years. And I'm so grateful for the people, Kazda and the others who work there. It's especially uh, exciting for me this year because our little granddaughter, Emma, three years old, is a part of preschool. And I love walking down there. I'm trying not to walk down there too much to spy on them and see what she's doing. But I love walking down and watching the kids learning and singing and playing. It's just, it's so exciting to, to know that they're here. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the schedules of our family worked out that I was the only one of us here who was able to, had freedom to pick her up. And so her mom and dad said, to him, would you pick Emma up for preschool today? And I thought about that for a millisecond and said, yes, I would be happy to pick up her for preschool. And her mom told her, you know, grandpa's going to pick you up from preschool. And I found out later she kept telling her teachers all day, my grandpa's picking me up from preschool. My grandpa's picking me up from preschool. So at 11.45, I walked down the hallway and they were outside playing. I went out to the playground. She saw me. She came running over. Grandpa, grandpa, grandpa. And if you could, if I could bottle that, find a way to bottle that and just open it up every morning and sniff that feeling and that essence of that experience of your grandchild running to you, it would be awesome. And she ran over and she gave me a big hug. And then she did something that was I did not expect. Completely unexpected. She took me by the hand. And she walked me over to all of the teachers and the workers. And she introduced me to them. <laughs> Every one of them said, this is my grandpa. This is my grandpa. This is my grandpa. This is my grandpa. Every single one of them. You know, she doesn't understand that I know all these teachers. We've been friends a long time. You know, she just was excited to introduce me to her teachers. And two days later, I was reading in Philip Yancey's book on prayer, a story about a woman who said in our church, anytime the rector, when the rector talks to us about praying for other people, he says to us, envision it like this. Picture yourself taking that person by the hand And leading them to, presenting them to Jesus. 
And I think there is something deeply significant about that as we pray for other people. I mean, in essence, this is what we want for people. This is our, this is, we want them to experience the fullness of God in their lives. And we care enough about them and their circumstances and whatever it, brokenness and hurt and pain that they're experiencing. That we are willing to give, to sacrifice, to involve ourselves, to take the burden, to bring them to Jesus. And what's so interesting is that when we do that, we find joy. Like a little girl introducing her grandpa to her teachers. You know, we come to this table this morning. And it is this, this visible evidence of God's grace to us. And what God has done for us in Christ Jesus who comes and is the ultimate one who stands in the gap. And takes upon himself all that we are. And it's looking back, but it's also looking forward. Because the writer of Hebrews says that that same Jesus who ascended into heaven is continually interceding for you and me. I'd like for us to take just a moment now. And to just in silence ask God, is there someone... Is there a circumstance, is there a hurt or a pain that he might want us to bear that burden? And to hear him speaking his grace to each of us. Most gracious Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us of being partners with you and your purposes in the world. And for the joy that we are privileged to experience in giving of ourselves to this task. We thank you, Father, that this is possible because of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and who fills us and transforms us and calls us. Father, may your blessing rest upon the bread and the cup of which we partake today. May it be food for our souls as we embrace Jesus Christ. May it lead us to follow you, to follow him, to be the people of prayer that you call us to be. Through Christ we pray.
Amen.